Hey everyone, welcome to the Pursue God podcast. This is the special Tuesday edition. I'm Pastor Brian, joined by Pastor Ross. Ross, every Tuesday for the next 12 Tuesdays, we're going to be going through a series that we're just calling Sistheo, and that stands for Systematic Theology. Now, before I ask you to define systematic theology, why don't we just talk for a second about how this content is a little bit different than our normal content at PursueGod.org, because we're calling this content um, intensive discipleship training. Yeah, you know, it, it's very similar in the sense that that we have a topic, and we engage the topic, and you can study it on your own, and when you come together with a mentor, you can, you know, talk about it together. The big difference is, is how there's just more content, and it's a little bit maybe more serious content than some of our topics and pursue God. Yeah, so don't try, I just want to encourage, when I disciple people, I notice sometimes, every once in a while, they'll show up having just watched the video on the way over to meet with me for coffee. And if it's a five-minute video and some simple talking points, a lot of times you can pull that off with our regular content, but don't try to pull that off with our intensive content, because there's just a lot more to it. And I think you'd probably get a little bit lost in the conversation if you don't do a little bit of prep ahead of time. Yeah, and that's why, you know, that's why we're offering the podcast uh, for this series, because there is a lot of depth and there's a lot of interesting uh, things we want to really lay out. We want to be thorough. We want to be systematic, as the systematic theology says. And, and so, you know, it's going to take a little bit more time to prep because... You know, we do recommend listening to the whole podcast all the way through, and then, then there's a book that goes with it. We'd mm-hmm. recommend reading a chapter or two of the book for each of the topics in our series. And so, you know, you have to plan ahead and really make time for it. Yeah, you'll notice in these lessons for this intensive content, you will have homework every week, and it will reference a chapter or two in the book by Wayne Grudem called Christian Beliefs. Now let's cover that for a second, Ross, because Wayne Grudem, he's one of my favorite theologians. He wrote a book that I use all the time called Systematic Theology, and it's a great big thick book. I reference it all the time when I'm prepping sermons, when I'm doing Bible study. But he wrote another book called Doctrine is this is the middle-sized book. Yeah, that's right. Bible Doctrine, I think it's it's called. It's just called Bible Doctrine. Bible Doctrine. Yeah. And then he wrote a third book, which is the one we're going to be using for our homework, called Christian Beliefs. And basically, each one just sort of pairs down the content from the previous one. So Christian Beliefs is the smallest version of his systematic theology, and we're using it for homework. But we encourage you, I really encourage you, to, if you've never picked it up before, pick up his systematic theology for a deeper dive on the stuff we'll be talking about in this series. Right, and if you want a medium deep dive, then the Bible Doctrine book. But uh, you can thank us later for giving you the book that the chapters are only about 10 pages long. (laughs) That's right, and it's also the cheapest of the three books. That's one of the reasons we picked it. All right, so pick up the book. And and one other thing about it is this is great, as always, this is great for one-on-one discipling. So if you're listening to this in your car, I hope you're encouraged by the content every Tuesday as we roll it out on the Pursue God podcast. But I also hope that you don't just take it in for yourself, that you use this in a discipling relationship, you use it in small groups. If you've got a small group at church that could really benefit from this, I think that's really the goal here is to encourage people to use this with their small group, with their discipling relationship, or even in a family devotional study. If you've got maybe some older kids, high school kids at home, this would be a great one for them. Absolutely. That would be great. And do it with your spouse. It's accessible enough 
Um, it's a little more intensive, but it's still accessible enough for a lot of people to really get a lot out of it. Right. Now, this is a follow-up series to our previous 12-week series called The Pursuit. So The Pursuit is 12 weeks on the essentials of Christianity. We don't cover a ton of theology in The Pursuit. Obviously, there's some theology in it, but it's really more about helping people become full-circle followers of Jesus, people who, number one, trust Jesus for salvation, number two, honor God in their life and their lifestyle choices, and then number three, make disciples. So if you finish The Pursuit in 12 weeks, then this is kind of the follow-on companion series so that you can take a deep dive on some of the systematic theology. And that's that kind of speaks a little bit to how we've organized this, Ross. We covered some content in the pursuit, a little bit of content in the pursuit that you would call doctrinal. And really what we've done here in this series is over these 12 weeks, we've broken it down into four different modules. Why don't you explain that real quick? Yeah, first of all, well, the, the four modules, we start with the basic nature of God and the how God has revealed himself to us, then we go into the person of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, humanity. In the, in the third module, we're talking about really salvation and the Christian life, different aspects of what that looks like. And in the fourth module, we're talking about the church and the future, what happens individually and what happens to the world that we live in in the future. I would say this, um, as we offer this thing on systematic theology to follow up on the pursuit, we're very aware that in, in American culture, it's really easy to think that by mastering the doctrine that you've become automatically mature as a Christian. And so we're really saying, look, the pursuit is what, it, what maturity looks like as a Christian. The theological part is, is an important foundation and basis for that, but, but we don't want to encourage anybody to just sort of ignore the pursuit and jump into the doctrine, mm -hmm. because the maturity biblically is measured by the influence the, that we have in the lives of other people, not just how much Bible knowledge and theological knowledge we can cram into our head. Yeah, that's right. In fact, if you are taking Sistheo before you take the pursuit, that's fine, but make sure to go back and take the pursuit and then be ready to take someone else through the pursuit as well, because that's where you get to lead someone to faith in Christ. And I always like to tell people, you know, we already, most Christians today already have more doctrine than the early Christians had. So even though we're passionate, Ross, you and I both are really passionate about doctrine, it, we're more passionate about putting it into practice. We're more, pra more, more passionate about making disciples, and that's really what Jesus commanded us. He didn't tell us to study doctrine. Right. He told us to make disciples. Now, the study of doctrine is valuable as long as it moves us toward making disciples. Right. But you're right, Ross, if we just do it to be smart and to, and to puff ourselves up, then, then many, well, there are many verses we can go over that say, that's not good, that's wrong, it's even sinful. Right. Yeah, amen. So anyway, laying out some basics there before we get started. Okay, so one more basic before we get started. What is theology, Ross, and what is systematic theology? Well, theology, the word itself comes from um, ancient languages that mean it means from in the Greek language uh, the study of God, and so that's called theology proper. But theology is bigger than just the study of God; but it's the study of everything related to God, and so it's the study of uh, beliefs and doctrines. What we what do we believe about God? About every, about what God has done? What what about how He relates to human beings? What about God's plan for the future? All that is theology. Systematic theology 
It's called systematic because it's organized around um, a system of ideas. Now, the Bible is not an encyclopedia of theology. The Bible is a narrative, um, a grand story of God's working. But over time, historically, uh, we've seen that it's helpful to ask the question, what does the Bible teach about, and then fill in the blank, and then go through the whole Bible to discern what it teaches about. Say, what does the Bible teach about the nature of God? Well, we can compile all that into uh, a topic, and then we can ask another, what does the Bible teach about the Holy Spirit? What does the Bible teach about the future, about salvation? And each time we compile one of those core topics, then we put them all side by side with each other. We have this now system of theology. So that's the way that we approach theology systematically, is to ask that question and compile the answer. And again, for this series, our system is going to break down some of these topics into four modules, as you already outlined for us, Ross. And so we're going to be using that as our framework for our system. But again, if you want to see a broader framework, there's, you know, you could see Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. There are many other um, theologians out there who have created their own systematic theology. But it's a it's a way of approaching the Bible and saying, how do I what, how do I organize all of the important topics to help someone un really understand who right. God is exactly. and how we relate to that? So, exactly. with all that in mind, and again, just a reminder, to everyone, you can find this entire series at pursuegod.org forward slash sistheo, S-Y-S-T-H-E-O. Ross, today, lesson one, we're going to talk about how God reveals himself to the world. We're going to talk today about God's revelation. And there's a reason that we're using this as topic one, because theology, the study of God and his truth, is only possible because God has revealed himself. That's the reason we have theology in the first place. So it makes sense that how God reveals himself in the world is, is, is a great first topic. Mm -hmm. And we can organize God's revelation into three different things. The first one, Ross, explain this for us, it's general revelation. Yeah, the, the Bible teaches us that God has revealed himself to humanity through the creation that he made. Um, and so general revelation means this very gen this general, generic sort of self-revelation of God. And so Psalm 19 talks about how the heavens declare the glory of God. And so there's something about God that can be seen from, you know, looking up in the sky at night, right, and th th through the creation that he's made. Romans chapter 1, uh, verses 19 and 20, tells us that human beings really, really should understand the existence and power of God through everything that he's made. And the argument that Paul's making there is that human beings are therefore without excuse for turning away from God, because he should be known. The, the problem with a general revelation, it tells us something about God, but it doesn't tell us a lot of detail about God. It's, there's certain things that it's just impossible to discern about the nature of God by looking at the created world that he made. Which is why... It always drives me nuts when I hear people come to church and they say, you know, I don't usually go to church because church to me is in the mountains, right? I like to go to, and that's where I commune with God. And I think there's some truth to that because God mm -hmm. reveals himself in his beauty and his splendor through the mountains, his majesty, his greatness. He made the mountains, he made the stars, he, he made everything that we see. So yeah, you can, you can know God a little bit mm -hmm. through his general revelation, but thank God 
that he didn't stop there. Okay, so general revelation is available to everybody, right? And yeah. then this yeah. second thing I would say is probably available to most people, and that would we would call that special revelation. Mm-hmm. And the most the most obvious form of special revelation that God gives us is the Bible, right? right. And we're right. going to talk today, Ross, about nine important truths about the Bible as the Word of God. So if you're taking notes at home, there are nine things you can write down here. We're going to kind of go through it. It's going to be a little bit intense, um, but Ross will kind of go a little bit quickly through each one. Mm-hmm. The first thing about the Bible, which is God's special revelation, is inspiration. What does it mean that the Bible is inspired? Well, it means that it really comes from God. It's, it's generated by God. The biblical term that's used for that in uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 is it's God-breathed. So it's breathed out by God. In other words, he's the source. He, so that now, now, God didn't di- just dictate the Bible to some human author, like, like somebody sat down with a notepad and God said, okay, now say this. But God worked through the individual author's unique circumstances, personality, uh, culture, language, and all the rest to bring forth what God wanted to say. And so inspiration means that um, the words of the Bible are actually God's words. And, we, and Jesus really, um, it, the reason we believe this, I mean, the Bible attests it for itself, but also we see Jesus quoted human characters and attributed their words to the Holy Spirit when he quoted the Old Testament. Hmm. So it's the idea that those words are God's words. They ultimately have their origin in him, not just in a human author. Yeah, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is inspired by God. That means it's God-breathed, right? Mm -hmm. That it wasn't just human beings who wrote those words. So it's very different from any other book you can pick up on the bookshelf, and Second Peter says that it didn't come from human initiative, but it but those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit as they spoke from God. And you just mentioned the the passage where Jesus quotes the words of David and attributes him to the Holy Spirit. That's from Mark twelve, verse thirty six. So that's the inspiration of the Bible, the first mark of the Bible as God's special revelation. The second one, Ross, this is I, these kind of go hand in hand, mm-hmm. it's the inerrancy of the Bible. What do we mean when we say that the Bible is inerrant? They do go hand in hand, because if the, if the Bible is God's Word and his, his words to us, then God himself is unable to lie. It's contrary to God's character to lie to us. So when we say the Bible, when we use the word inerrancy, I mean, the Bible's without error. Maybe a better way to say that is the Bible never affirms anything that's contrary to fact. It always tells the truth. Now, whenever on whatever it says. Now, the Bible doesn't say anything about a lot. There's a lot of things the Bible doesn't speak to. The Bible doesn't speak to um, the nature of viruses, hmm. or it doesn't talk. It doesn't talk about you know certain like geopolitical issues and so forth. But wherever the Bible does speak. Um, what it says about that subject is going to be absolutely true because it's rooted in the character of God. Now, not everyone believes this, right? In fact, I would say not even every Christian necessarily necessarily believes this. You might go to church with some Christians who take a lower view of Scripture, and those are the people who say, whether whether they even know the word inerrancy or not, they just sort of, they kind of pick and choose what they want from Scripture, and they don't they don't allow it to have authority mm-hmm. 
in our lives, which right. is the third mark, right? right? Because of inerrancy, because we believe that Scripture is inerrant. We don't believe that about any person, by the way. We don't believe that about any leader. Your pastor is not inerrant, right? Because the Bible is inerrant, number three, it can have authority in our lives. Right, you can see how these things are related to each other, and each one is sort of an implication of the other one. So if the Bible comes from God, and if it speaks the truth, when whatever it says, then ultimately the implication of that as our ultimate source of truth is that it's going to be the final authority for what we believe and for how we live. And so really, if you have a question about how to live, should I do this or do, should I live this way or live that way, or what should I believe? Should I believe this about Jesus or the other thing about Jesus? But we'll look to the Bible and say, well, that's going to be the authority and everything that it speaks to that we have to accept that as the ultimate reality and the ultimate definer of reality for us because it is the Word of God. Now, I could see some people, Ross, might push back and say, okay, well, well hold on a second, but, but there's a lot of stuff in the Old Testament that we today don't take as authoritative, mm-hmm. right? So, so do, does the Old Testament have the same authority that the New Testament has? How would you answer that? That's a great question. It's not a question of authority. It's a question of interpretation. So woven into this whole conversation about the Bible is the question of interpretation. So you might have seen a bumper sticker in the back in the day that years ago that said that this bumper sticker said, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Well, there's really a fourth thing in there that never made it into the bumper sticker. God said it, I interpreted it, I believe it, and that settles it. So there's always an interpretive question that goes in there. We correctly interpreting the Word of God. So with respect to some of the Old Testament issues, then the proper interpretation of the Bible would be to understand it in the context that it was written, to understand the original intent of the authors. And so we'd have to filter in the fact that the Old Testament is, much of it is, has, has to do with the unique relationship that God set up with his people Israel. And it, and it applies in that setting, but that unique relationship in the New Testament, we learn, has been superseded. The word is a covenant. God made a covenant with them, but Jesus has made a new covenant with his people today. And so if it's not included in the new covenant, then it doesn't apply to us. We still learn from it. We still learn a lot about God from it. We learn about his holiness. We learn about his relationship with his people. We learn about all the things that led up to the coming of the Savior, the Messiah. But there's an interpretive grid that we have to look at the Old Testament through to say, does that apply to us with the same, is it equally applicable to us as it was to the original reader, why or why not. Okay, so that that sort of opens the door to the fourth quality, and we're going to call this reliability. The question the question someone might ask then is, okay, well then, but the Old Testament that's that's really really old. Those those writings are ancient writings, right? So reliability to me kind of connects with authority and it connects mm-hmm. with inerrancy and inspiration. Someone might say, look, we're we've got We've got ways to test out ancient writings now. Like, hasn't it been debunked? How do we know that the Bible is reliable 
so that I can trust both the Old and New Testaments to have authority in my life and that it can be in the inerrant, inspired Word of God? Yeah, there's, that's a great question. It's a very relevant question. Um, there's a lot of answers that we'll probably, we won't get into in this podcast, but we'll try to link some of the resources that talk about those things. The question that I'm interested in here, because it's relevant in our culture where we live, um, where our church is located, has the Bible been corrupted? Mm -hmm. So that's one question of reliability. There's other questions of reliability. Does the Bible, is the Bible um, reliably recount the history that actually happened? In other words, is it a fantasy or is it rooted in history? Um, that's another question about reliability that's really important. But, but the, one, the one question that is mo more important to me in this setting is, has the Bible been corrupt? Do we reliably have uh, Bibles today that reflect what God originally said? Okay, so that, that's the, another way to think about reliability. Yeah, so that our confidence rests on three factors when we're talking about the reliability of, of the Bible. The first one is categorized under the word transmission. The way that, that God's Word has been transmitted to us has been a pretty meticulous process through the ages. Yeah, it's quite amazing. You know, So some people will claim that, oh, people just changed the Bible to make it say whatever they wanted it to say, or, or that um, you know, careless scribes allowed really important truths to be um, you know, lost from the pages of the Bible. But when you understand the way that it was copied, the, there was incredible um, standards that were set up by these scribes to say, you know, if you human, there's going to be human mistakes that are made. And if you've ever copied down, you know, uh, something from one page to another, you, you notice that, oh, you left a word out because your eye skipped or something like that. Those are very predictable and identifiable kind of things because humans do them. But the scribes built in these, this quality control process in how they did it. That, that really mitigated and identified and, and mitigated those kind of typical human errors. And they just weren't content with passing something forward that wasn't um, as completely uh, corresponding to the, the original that they had um, without making sure that it, that it was the right thing. And that leads to the second key of reliability, and that is the pretty incredible consistency of manuscripts over long periods of time. In fact, you know, for the longest time, the oldest manuscripts that we had were, were, were very ancient. And then there was this incredible discovery, archaeological series of discoveries called the Dead Sea Scrolls. I'm sure many people have heard about that. And this is where a, a shepherd boy found some scrolls that turn, it turns out dated all the way back almost a thousand years older than the oldest manuscript evidence we have. And in particular, he found almost the entire manuscript of the book of Isaiah. And when we compare the Dead Sea Scrolls Isaiah to the Masoretic text, which previously was the oldest um, version of Isaiah that we had, and those were a thousand years different. I can't even, I can't even fathom how different that must have been. And my understanding, Ross, correct me if I'm wrong, is that some of the secular scholars at the time said, oh, this is going to prove it. Yeah, This is yeah. going to prove that the, the Bible is not reliable. Well, what happened? Well, it's interesting because Isaiah was originally written about 700 years before Christ. The copies of the Dead Sea Scrolls 
were uh, produced about 100 years, in the 50 to 100 years before Christ. So there's a time gap of 600 years. But then, like you said, the earliest manuscripts that we had, apart from the Dead Sea Scrolls, were like 12th century, 11th century, so over 1,000 years. Um, and so it was interesting to see, okay, what, 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 how are they going to compare? Look at all the, the things that you know, could have entered in and all the uh, problems that could have come into the text. So we put them two side by side, and, and the scholars found that um, there was almost zero changes at all. The changes that were there were very immaterial, it would be like uh, there's, there's two letters in Hebrew that look a lot alike. What would be the R and the D? And, and so, but, uh, so sometimes an R and a D were displaced, and only when the, the word that that created with the different letters still fit in the context. But um, it was easy to identify that. It would be similar to... Uh, we, have, we have our own in English letters that look similar, and one might be confused with another. But there was nothing that... that no change that affected anything that Isaiah was trying to say, any belief that we have out of the book of Isaiah. Um, so it's this huge 90 bajillion percent, you know, I don't know the exact number, 98, 99 percent correspondence, and the one or two percent, again, were very trivial and easily identifiable. Nothing that uh, material content about beliefs or history or anything else was changed. So it's really quite remarkable. Well, and then add on top of that the third confidence-building factor for the reliability of the Bible, and that's the abundance of manuscript evidence. So not just that some of the manuscripts really line up and they're consistent, but also that we have far more manuscripts of the Old and New Testament than we have of really any other ancient document. Right, right. Ancient writers like Aristotle that we take for granted that we know what they, they said— there's such a sm very small percentage of um, manuscripts available to compare, to prove we know what Aristotle said compared to the Bible. Um, so, and, and the fact is, okay, well, you have all these thousands of manuscripts. That could be seen as a weakness because many of them are different. Well, they're, they're different in very small little ways. So you have nine, you see, you have ten manuscripts. Each of them has, is different in a different way. You put them all side by side, and, it, and it's pretty easy to see, oh, this is where this one got that. This is where this one got the other one. And, and it gives us a real strong sense by comparing them that, oh, it's pretty easy to see what the original must have been based on, you know, nine out of the ten agree on that line and nine out of the ten agree on that other line and nine out of the ten agree on that word and nine out of the ten agree on that other, on that punctuation. And it's pretty easy to see from all these manuscripts. And I'm, I use ten as a round number, but there's th there are thousands actually out there that can help us to reconstruct the original text. Okay, so that is reliability of the Bible. And let's pause for a second, because I know people are getting a little lost. If you're not like reading this and looking at this, we're, we're talking about God's special revelation in, in the Bible, as opposed to his general revelation in creation. We're talking about these nine important truths, and so far we've covered four of them, and I would kind of classify these sort of roughly together. God's, the Bible's inspiration, its inerrancy, its authority, and its reliability. Now, the next four truths about the Bible, I would also kind of put together, I would lump together, and it, and it starts with clarity. The cl we say that the Bible has clarity. What does that mean? Yeah, it means that, um, that whatever God intends us to understand from the Bible is possible to be understood. 
that it, it now the Bible obviously it, if you've read it it's not equally clear about everything I can read things in the Bible that make me scratch my head I'm not sure what is going on here or there not everything is equally easy to grasp but the Bible's authors expected people to be able to understand what they wrote and um, and so everything a person needs to know God, everything a person needs for salvation, for the Christian life, um, all that can be understood by anyone who basically picks up a Bible to read it. Now, there's an attitude involved in that. If I'm asking God for help, if I'm willing to follow what he, what he uh, says, then that helps me understand more fully, because I, sometimes the clarity of the Bible won't necessarily break through a person's reluctance to, or their their predetermined uh, decision not to believe it. But the point is, is that what God intends it to us to understand, we are able to understand. Yeah, so the Bible's clear, and I appreciate that that's a part of, the li- of this list, because God is not playing hide-and-seek with us. He wants us to find Him. He, he wants us to pursue Him, and He's been clear about it in His Word which is good news. It shows us that God cares about people. Um, you know, sometimes in re- maybe you think about in relationship with somebody, there's somebody who's intentionally trying to be mysterious. Mm-hmm. I don't yeah. know, maybe because they want to seem smarter than they are or something like that. God doesn't play games like yeah. that. He's, he's, he's very clear in his word. So that's the clarity of the word. This, the next one is the necessity of the word. We need the word, and without it, there are a bunch of things that we just can't know about God, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we talked that this really, really relates to our conversation about general revelation. General revelation can reveal the power of God. You see, wow, who, what kind of being must, it, must he be to make the stars and all the rest? It can reveal the existence of God. But, but it can't really tell us about, say, for example, the triune nature of God. It can't really tell us about um, how to be saved, how to be right with this God, you know, that made all of this amazing stuff, how to make, maintain a relationship with him. It, without the Bible, we don't really know what God desires from our lives. We don't really know how, how, how to honor him or how God wants us to live. And so we need the Bible. Without it, you know, we're, we would just be left to our own devices, and uh, we'd just be making up stuff, you know, as cultures, human cultures have done, to try to um, figure out where the path leads or, or how to follow it, we just would not know unless God had revealed himself to us in this way that we all have access to that we can read and apply for ourselves. And by the way, I need to say here, that doesn't mean the Bible is the only thing we need for salvation. Obviously, we're, and we'll talk, about mo- we'll talk about this more later in the series, we need Jesus. G- we need what Jesus did in order to be saved clearly. Also, we need the Holy Spirit's work mm-hmm. in order to understand the Bible, right. in order for God's Word to be clear to us and make sense to us. And so we're not, we're not saying, when we say ne- the necessity of the Bible, we're not saying that it's the only thing we need that would be idolizing the Bible. Right. And we don't, we don't believe in the Trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Bible. That's right. The Bible helps us to understand God, and we need it to understand God and what God wants to do. But, but God, like you said, is using the Holy Spirit, for example, we didn't put that in the list. We could have made 10 because we would have talked about the idea of illumination. This says, you know, the, the Bible was inspired by God. We saw the role of the Holy Spirit. 
uh, in the life of the prophets and the apostles, but the Holy Spirit also has this role in our lives as we read the Bible that he illuminates its truth and its meaning to us. All right, so we've got clarity, we've got necessity, and then we have the sufficiency of the Bible. What does it mean that the Bible is sufficient? Well, it means that it, it contains everything that we need God to reveal to us for to know Him eternally and to live for Him. So back to the point you were just making, Brian, it doesn't mean that the Bible... It doesn't mean we don't need the Holy Spirit. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that we don't need anything else but the, the Word, the pages that we have, but, but that it's enough for the certain content that we need to have a right relationship with God and to live for Him. Um, and so, you know, we, we, we need uh, anything else we need, then, you know, the, the Bible gives us the core stuff. Again, it doesn't talk about everything that exists under the sun, um, those things are helpful, maybe like medicine or economics, or those things are helpful to us, but they're not necessary for us to have a relationship with God eternally. Mm-hmm. So someone who's really paying attention right now might be tempted to turn off this podcast because they, they say the Bible, the Bible is enough. I don't, I don't need this pod, podcast in order to understand God's truth, and that's true. You should read your Bible more than you listen to podcasts, more than you listen to preachers or anything like that, or even read books, other good books by good Christian authors. Don't ever let those things replace the Bible because the Bible is enough. I personally think it's going too far. I know some people who say, I only read the Bible and I never read anything else and I never listen to anything else. That's not really what sufficiency of the Bible means. That's not the point of it. It doesn't mean that other things aren't profitable or fruitful for us, right? right? Um, But, um, and it, well, I think partly everything else we do read, we read it through the filter of the Bible. That goes back to its authority, Mm -hmm. right? So Mm -hmm. that we're learning about whatever book you're reading, a podcast you're listening to, whatever you're learning about life and about the world we live in, we filter that through the authority of the Bible. Okay, so clarity, necessity, sufficiency, and then finally, efficacy. The Bible is effective. It has the power to accomplish God's purposes. This is my favorite part of the whole topic, actually, um, because it means that the Bible is powerful, that God is going to use it in our life. The Bible is more than just words on a page or just ink on paper that you know, it actually conveys the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit, we talked about that before, but the Bible makes it clear, like in Hebrews chapter 4, that uh, the Word of God is living and active, and, and it's used by the Holy Spirit to cut right through to the heart of matters in our soul and our life. Um, it has the power to transform our hearts and our minds. It's a, it has the power to equip us uh, to know God, to live for God, and so this is exciting and encouraging to me that, that the Bible is actually going to be transformative and actually life-changing as I learn it and put it into practice. Yeah, this is why you should go to a church that teaches the Bible, that doesn't just teach you know, people's ideas. And you know, sometimes I'll hear sermons that have very little reference to Scripture, or maybe they'll refer to a passage, but then the rest of the time it's just you know, pop psychology or nice words or encouraging words or whatever. 
for us when we preach, we really try to we really try to make plain God's word, and we try to let God's word speak for itself. Now we're still doing a lot of explanation of the word mm-hmm. of God, but really God's word is powerful. God's word has the has more ability to do, to do something in the in the here in the lives of the hearers than any preacher's words. So go find a church that preaches the word, not necessarily Amen. verse by verse. I don't want to be legalistic about that, but just a church that preaches the word. Right. Pay attention to how whether the messages are based on the word of God or not. Right. Great point. Very true. And you know, of course, read it. Read it yourself. Right. You know, read right. it and uh, and study it yourself. And let the Holy Spirit convict you. Right. Let it let it be effective in your life for life change. Right. So you're reading it. We're not just reading it for knowledge mm-hmm. or information. We're really reading it to allow God to speak through it um, to whatever's going on in my life. Yeah, Second Timothy three sixteen says all Scripture is inspired by God. We've already mentioned that, but we didn't talk about the rest of the verse. It says that it's useful for these four things: to teach us what's true, to make us realize what's wrong in our lives to correct us when we're wrong, and then to train us in righteousness. And so God's Word is, I've always loved that word, useful. It's useful. It's effective. Right. It actually changes you. It's not just, uh, it's not just good information. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so, that, so, we, so far we've covered eight. We've covered the Bible's inspiration, inerrancy, authority, and reliability, and we covered the Bible's clarity and necessity, sufficiency, and efficacy. And there's one more in our list, Ross. And this is a word some people maybe have never heard before. So let's take a few minutes to explain this. We, we call it the canonicity of the Bible. What do we mean by that? The question raised with canonicity is the Bible as we have it, is it complete? And so the word canon re- means a rule or a standard. And so it's like if something is canonical. Now, that word is used in other settings, too, in secular settings. So there's a there's certain uh, artist or a musician or whatever, they have the canon of their work. It's, in other words, it's a complete uh, description of all their work. So canonicity is about whether some book or, or writing that claimed to be scripture, whether it meets the standard. Um, should it be included in the writings that we consider inspired and inerrant and authoritative, or should it not? And so that's the question of canonicity. The canon is then those books that have been uh, recognized through history as being inspired and inerrant and authoritative and efficacious and so forth. And so evangelical Christians believe that the canon of Scripture includes 66 books, the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments, and nothing more. Now that doesn't mean those other that there aren't other books that were written, you know, thousands of years ago that aren't still valuable, but they wouldn't rise to the level of inerrancy of Scripture. Right, 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 exactly. And so, yeah, so, you know, for the, for the Old Testament Scriptures, the, the canonicity was set at a, by the Jewish people uh, around the time of Christ, shortly after the time of Christ. It said the Jewish believers... Uh, the Jewish people who, whose scriptures those originally are said, these are the books that meet kind of the criteria. And then for the New Testament, um, that recognition took place over the first couple of hundred years. As the church circulated these different writings, it became apparent over time that they really did belong, that they really were inspired. So the church is not deciding 
what's inspired or what isn't. The church is responsive, recognizing the, the writings that, are, that God already did inspire. And they did it based on five tests. Well, let's go over these five tests real quick. Again, these are the tests that, that they kind of ran the book through to see if it should be considered canonical in the Bible. Should we keep it as, our, as part of Scripture, part of the 66 books that ended up making the cut? Test number one is universality. Did the writings in question reflect the unified view of the whole body of Christians? Yeah, so there were, you know, at different times throughout the ancient world in the early couple of first couple of centuries, there were works that circulated that really kind of uh, reflected a hobby horse of one kind of pocket of, of the Christian movement or one particular um, or another particular perspective. And so those were ultimately recognized as being less than universal. And so, you know, that's, you know, that they didn't make the cut. Number two is apostolic origin. Was the work written by a known prophet or apostle or by a close associate reflecting the apostle's perspective? Right. So we have, um, you know, some books in the New Testament are clearly written by an apostle. We have a number of works of Paul. We have the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of John. We have other books that um, were not directly written by an apostle, but, but we see the apostle sort of uh, umbrella of influence. That, for example, the Gospel of Luke was written. Luke was a close associate with the Apostle Paul and traveled with him. Um, the Gospel of Mark, Mark was a close associate with Peter. And so we believe that Mark's writing was, reflected the perspective and the influence of Peter. And so that, so it passes the apostolic test, even though it wasn't written by, directly by the Apostle himself. Now there's one book in the New Testament that sort of stands out, I'm going to pop this one on you, and it's the book of Hebrews, right? Mm-hmm. Because we don't, we don't really know who wrote the book of Hebrews. So how did Hebrews pass the test? Yeah, nobody knows who wrote the book of Hebrews. For uh, Many people for many years thought it was the Apostle Paul. It, there's some reasons why the current thinking is it probably wasn't the Apostle Paul. Others have ascribed it to Apollos, and nobody, but nobody knows for sure. But it meets the, the rest of the tests, and it bears the marks of the, all the things that w- were consistent with apostolic teaching along the way. So that, that's really um, the third criteria mm-hmm. becomes more prominent than for the book of Hebrews. Yeah, and that criteria is orthodoxy. Are the doctrines and values expressed consistent with the rest of Scripture? Yeah, so Deuteronomy chapter 13 kind of gives us the standard here. It, it, he says in the Old Testament setting, if a prophet comes to you, even if he does miracles and you know, powerful works of, of uh, wonders, but he introduces you to gods you have not known, it says reject him. And so the test is, for, for the Old Testament, the test was, is, is this teaching innovative in a way that moves you away from the things that have already been expressed in Scripture, the things that we already know are true? And so that's, that kind of standard is true throughout. So a, a book comes up, and it, you know somebody claims the Gospel of Thomas or some other book should be included in Scripture. And, and so the, the question is, well, does it teach what the books that we know are, are canonical? Does it teach the things that they teach? Is it consistent with those things? 
You know, it doesn't have to repeat word for word at all, but is it consistent? That's our rule of thumb, is what God has already revealed to himself has to be the standard by which any new claimant uh, has to be um, evaluated. So that's orthodoxy. The fourth one is divine efficacy. Did the message of the book have life-changing power in people's experience? And this is one reason why it took some time for the church to to recognize the marks of inspiration or canonicity in book, because they had to circulate. They had to become known. Um, it wasn't like today where, you know, you post something on the Internet and it's immediately available for, to billions of people. So these manuscripts were copied and, and, and spread around and um, taken to other regions, and so books that might have been written in Ephesus are brought to Rome, and, and so it took some time for the recognition of a factor like this to be acknowledged. Wow, people read this, and it's like God is changing their life. Because we talked about efficacy earlier. Well, which books really have that power? Now, this one doesn't stand alone. None of these stand alone. Mm -hmm. They all have to be considered um, in conjunction with each other. And then the fifth one's interesting, especially when you think about some of the newer cults that are out there. The The fifth test of canonicity is antiquity. Did it originate in Bible times, or was it composed long afterward? Yeah, and this is, we're going to talk about this in a minute, but part of the issue behind this test is that the New Testament in particular, the Bible really as a whole, is all about Jesus, and it um, really interprets the life, the work, etc., of Jesus for us. And so, you know, if, if it was written centuries after Jesus was on the earth, and, and there's no sense of an eyewitness re- report in any way, then, you know, that would undermine its claim. So anti- that's one factor of antiquity, why antiquity matters, because Jesus was, you know, came in a particular time and place. And so the question is, if somebody comes and says they've got new scripture, whatever, um, then, then you're going to go, oh, wait, like, how can that be apostolic if it's not ancient? Or how can it be orthodox and measure up to, to other scriptures if it's not rooted in that same stream which birthed all of the rest of scripture? Which really is one of the many reasons we, we do not believe... It's one of the many reasons we believe that there will never be another book added to the Bible. The, the canon of Scripture is closed. We don't have to wonder if God's going to speak authoritatively and inerrantly through a, another prophet or apostle in the right. future. Right. right. Even, if we, even if we didn't believe that, and there's, we have good reason biblically to believe that the canon is closed, even if we didn't, um, anything new would still have to meet the tests. Mm-hmm. You know, it still have to be evaluated, and it wouldn't, you know. So, but that's another matter to talk about. We do believe the canon is closed, and we'll explain why in a moment. Yeah. All right, so we're talking about God's revelation. There are three ways he reveals himself. General revelation through creation, special revelation, specifically through the Bible. That's what we just spent a lot of time talking about. But, but actually, some people might say, well, that's it, right? He's revealed himself in the Bible, and that's his ultimate revelation. But there's actually a third type of revelation, and it's the ultimate type of revelation. This is God's self-revelation, 
and he did this in Jesus Christ. Right. I, I think, you know, we're Bible people. We, re, we revere the Bible. We honor it we, because of what we've talked about, because it is authoritative, because God works and uses it. But the Bible is not ultimate. Um, the final and ultimate way, scripturally, that God has revealed himself to us is through Jesus Christ, through his Son. When God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, became human and lived among us, John chapter 1, verse 18 explains that it says, No one has ever seen God, but Jesus has revealed God to us. So ultimately, um, he is the, the revelation of God that is the most, I guess, uh, final and complete versus, you know, even a, the book that God has uh, breathed out, out breathed to us. Yeah, I love what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12. He's, he explains that while God made himself known in the past through the prophets, I love that he says, in these final days, he's spoken to us through his son. So it's the cherry on top. It's the ultimate revelation. It doesn't take away from what God has done through the prophets or through his Bible, but it enhances it, it completes it, it finishes it all off. Right, right. right. And so... Yeah, that, so I want to keep that in mind whenever we talk about Scripture and Revelation, that really the Bible is not the ultimate revelation of God. Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. Um, but the Bible becomes really vitally important in that because it's the primary witness as to who Jesus is. Who, uh, what did he do? And why is that significant? Um, both leading up to his coming in the Old Testament and then the New, the New Testament um, interpreting his coming for us. Um, so that's why the Bible does become, in a, from a practical sense, become so important because we don't really know Jesus and we don't really observe that ultimate final revelation without the record that's centered around him that we find in Scripture. So that's topic one in systematic theology, how God reveals himself to the world. Again, to find the homework discussion questions to find this podcast and an article to go along with all this that we've talked about here. You can find all that in lesson one at our systematic theology page online, pursuegod.org forward slash sistheo. And make sure to join us next Tuesday for topic number two in the series.